Welcome to the Wisdom of the Donut Hole podcast, a podcast about Alaska author Ron Walden and his many novels. This episode is about Ron's 14th and most current book, The Fishing Hole, an Alaska bear tale, published in 2023 by Ugly Moose, Alaska. You want bears? This book has them. You want huge fish? This story has them. And you want bad guys? This book has them too. You want to visit one of the most beautiful, awesome places on earth? This book gives all that to you. You want characters that you might recognize when you visit Alaska next time? Yep, Ron's books have all of those. And you want a family-friendly, good reading story, right? Ron Walden's books are exactly what you want. About 27,000 square miles The Kenai Peninsula Borough is where Ron lives, and it's about the size of Virginia, West Virginia. Even subtracting the 10,600 square miles of Cook Inlet, a bay off the Gulf of Alaska that cleaves the borough into east and west land masses, it's still larger than West Virginia and a few other states, yet it's still fairly small by Alaska standards. Cook Inlet's rich in marine resources, including whales and fish, and natural resources of oil and natural gas. Cook Inlet's only about 14 miles wide at its narrowest. It divides the Kenai Peninsula Borough almost in half with the peninsula itself on the east side and a similar mass of property on the west side of the inlet. The west side of Cook Inlet is remote with a few villages, has many salmon-rich streams and wildlife including bears and moose, and even several active volcanoes. The balance on the east side is the actual peninsula with five cities along its 150 mile length. This podcast won't give away any secrets, but it'll describe places, people, history, and attractions of this amazing slice of outdoor heaven. Episode transcripts and show notes are downloaded and available at the Wisdom of the Donut Hole blog.blogspot.com and include a couple photos of the fishing hole book cover and a couple small maps for reference. Most visitors congregate alongside brown bears during the few weeks available for fishing for sockeye or red salmon. Hiking trails are open most of the year, weather dependent. Hikers, visitors, and sportsmen love the area's recreational opportunities and once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Poachers can create distinct threats for visitors by harassing or wounded wildlife, including the bears. This can be an issue, but usually not amid the busy time like the salmon run, unless maybe a uniquely profitable circumstance were to arise. The wildlife prize for sale as trophies or even folk remedy ingredients are dangerous by nature. Harassed or wounded, they're more sensitive to intruders, including innocent moms and pops, simply experiencing the trip of a lifetime along a river full of fish. But bears are as opportunistic as any poacher. They learn bad habits quickly. When they profit from it, they continue with bad habits. Improperly discarded fish waste is easy for them to get. A fish on a fisherman's line is an easy pickings for them. Maybe they're stalked or harassed for nefarious purposes and many of us just don't notice that. Predators dislike being stalked and they can get pretty testy and aggressive. Greedy folks taking too many fish reduce opportunities for honest folks, and that can actually diminish stocks. 
Some poachers might not even realize that's what they are. Some sell canned or smoked salmon illegally in Alaska and even at swap meets around the country. Criminal professional poachers take advantage of the bounty not only as a unique experience, but as a criminal enterprise that can eradicate wildlife and maybe even endanger recreational users. Poaching generates millions in illegal profits annually. The Denaina are the Kanaitse Indian tribe's ancestors. They recognize the abundance of the place they call Yaganin, the good land. They settled along the banks of its rivers and the Tagatnu, which is identified today as Cook Inlet, after Captain Cook's voyages here. Today, Kanaitse par- partners with the Chugach National Forest to preserve and protect the site at the Quebec or Footprints Interpretive Site near the Kenai River. Members share their traditions and culture with visitors with interpretive walks during the summer months. It's a nice break from fishing and an enjoyable experience. The Director of Government Affairs for the tribe emphasizes there's more to the Kenai Peninsula than fishing. These sites are a way to preserve, protect, and prevent damage to natural and archaeological resources by encouraging visitors to take care and not damage any sites along the rivers. Bears are apex predators spanned in Alaska. Brown bears and black bears are numerous. But brown bears get the most attention as they often haunt the same fishing holes as people and often at the same time. Brown bears and grizzly bears are subspecies of brown bears. Alaska brown bears are coastal bears. Inland brown bears found in central Alaska and even Yellowstone Park are smaller examples of ground bears that are called grizzlies. They have a brown fur with pale silver tips. This gave rise to the term grizzly, as in grizzled gray prospector when they were first encountered centuries ago. They have distinctive faces and short ears, muscular bodies, and a hump on their back. Brown bears at the center of the fishing hole that make it an Alaska bear tail span the northern hemisphere including the Kenai Peninsula. Up to 10 feet long or tall when they're standing, they can weigh up to 1,700 pounds. The taller the bear, the heavier they are, The more fish they catch and devour, the more they get noticed by tourists and animal traffickers alike. The bears in this story have thick, dark brown fur, muscular bodies, thick neck manes, huge curved claws and a hump on their back. They're awesomely intimidating at a distance and many Alaskans can attest that close up they're just as intimidating, frightening, beautiful, loud, and smelly creatures. Further south on Kodiak Island and its archipelago islands, brown bears called Kodiak bears are the largest of brown bears comparable in size to polar bears, for example. Science surmises Kodiaks are so distinctive because they're island dwellers with minimal contact or competition from other bears so they can maintain unique features and lifestyles and become much larger. Regardless of the species or color of a bear, the warnings are all the same. Our story is set in a location where brown bears are common along roads, trails, and streams. Large ones draw the greatest attention of tourists and fishermen and even wildlife officers, and even poachers looking for a unique trophy, rather than just a simple memorable photo. The area is saturated with warnings near the rivers that are central to the fishing hole story. Imagine a drill sergeant like R. Lee Ermey, rest his soul, his raspy, loud voice shouting would be much more memorable than just glancing at a poster of cool stuff about bears on them. 
these are some of the real warnings. Alaska bears have a short season to find enough food to survive the winter. They'll take carelessly discarded scraps of garbage. Black and brown bears fish the rivers, rest on the banks, travel on trails and boardwalks, and meander through campgrounds. The same access and sights people use. Obey the signs. Fish waste attracts bears. Bears eat fish heads, backbones, and other parts left behind. Reducing fish waste and human food resources reduces bear-human conflicts. Remove a whole fish, fillet them off-site, take them home or even to a commercial fish processor. If you must fillet on-site, use the cleaning tables at the Kenai-Russian River confluence or at the ferry landing. After you fillet them, cut the carcasses into small pieces and toss them into fast-moving currents. Common sense is posted very clearly too. This is not a safari park or petting zoo. This area is not managed for bear viewing. Do not approach or follow bears. Do not behave in ways that cause conflicts with people or bears. Imagine that drill sergeant in your ear and you won't disregard the warnings. Being in the same space as wild animals, including moose and bears, carries inherent risks. Stay on the trails. Make noise to prevent surprise encounters. Don't run from bears. They like a good challenge and running could trigger a pursuit. So only use trails with someone you can outrun. Well, that last part was made up. It's not a sign, but it's true. Stay in a group. Keep the kids close. Carry accessible bear spray and be prepared to use it. Always follow its regulations. They're designed to protect you, your family, and the bears. Immediately report any bear encounters to agency or staff. The drill sergeant has a few special instructions for anglers. Don't let a bear get a fish from your line. If a bear approaches you and you're reeling in a fish, cut the line. Don't let bears get an easy meal of fish waste either. Bears will learn bad habits and it's dangerous to other people. Carry your catch out hole or chop it into small pieces and toss the waste into the fast moving water. He also has messages for campers. Keep your area clean, keep a camp clean, store attractants in bear resistant containers or in your vehicle, follow advice and warnings as posted, Bears may be encountered, but most likely not as dangerous when obeying posted warnings. Gee, you think? How much clearer could it be? Drill sergeant or not, read the signs, obey the signs. It's actually pretty simple. Now back to the story about how the book became a story. First of all, it's important to know that coming to Alaska is a pleasurable thing. You don't have to be afraid of the bears. You don't have to be afraid of poachers. But you do need to read Ron's book. The Fishing Hole in Alaska Bear Tale is fiction, but it's based on fact. There are large bears there. There are small bears there. There's lots of fish. It's a beautiful place to see. You can't go wrong by visiting. So obey the signs, take a hike, enjoy it, get lots of pictures, and visit Alaska. Again, there are no spoilers in any of these podcasts. Just background information, some history, a bit of geography, help you know where you are. Uh, Description of some of the characters and other bits of info that's likely to make you really want to visit Alaska. Our author of Alaska True to Life Crime and Other Stories, Ron Walden, has been a hard rock miner, carpenter, salesman, business owner. He relocated to Alaska with his wife Betty in the early 1970s 
where they built their log home in Soldotna, and he learned to fly. Ron retired from the Alaska Department of Corrections and worked as a security officer along the Alaska Pipeline. Now he spends his free time riding, fishing, and building furniture for friends. And coffee. Ron loves coffee. No day has begun until after the geezer squad has had their coffee at his table. Alaska's been his home for over 50 years and he's never going to tire of it. Ron's someone that doesn't understand technology, doesn't want to understand technology, nor does he want to use it. It comes with too many of problems of reverse employer-employee relationships. It's needy, always slowing them down with silly tasks like click save, Ron, update programs, Ron, replace those end-of-life programs, Ron, reload the printer, Ron, fill that ink, Ron, that sort of thing. Ron prefers that tools do his bidding, like a hammer or a saw or even a coffee maker. He's never micromanaged good employees. A computer, though, requires micromanaging. It's a forced necessity and not so much a good employee. To hear more about Ron, listen to our podcast trailer, An Introduction to the Wisdom of the Donut Hole and to Ron. Then listen to Episode 1, Part 1 to hear Ron's biography as he grew up in North Idaho. Listen to Episode 1, Part 2 to hear about where he grew up. You'll enjoy him and you'll know Ron a little better when you're done. He's a big believer in the meaning of the wisdom of the donut hole, hence the title of this podcast. He encourages everyone to appreciate what they have and to choose optimism over pessimism. As kids, we heard it often and it goes like this. As you ramble through life, brother, wherever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. The Fishing Hole is one of more than a dozen exciting family-friendly books Ron's written. They feature crime and adventure stories loaded with Alaska places, bursting with backstories of history, recreational opportunities, characters, and plots of interest to all ages. There's no gratuitous violence or rough language, just good stories readers of any age can enjoy. These podcasts take you to real places, meeting composites of characters featured in his books and how they became those. Our goal is to post a new episode monthly, if not more often. Ron's books are available wherever books are sold, including your hometown bookstores and online. Go to ronwalden.com, booksamillion.com, barnesandnoble.com, and others if you want to order online. Ron's arranged special pricing for wholesale buyers ordering through Ingram Spark. Ask for his books if you don't see them on shelves of your favorite store, and thank you for giving us a try. Back to poaching, tourism, and history. The Fishing Hole in Alaska Bear Tale is a story of resources that encourage tourism and provide subsistence hunting and fishing for indigenous and other Alaska residents. Visitors can hunt and fish with proper licensing. Some of the areas in this story have size limits that are almost unbelievable. In some places, a fisherman might not be able to keep a rainbow trout under 30 inches in length or a salmon under 50. The world record king salmon caught on rod reel was caught in the Kenai River near Soldotna in 1985. It was over 97 pounds and the record still stands. This book's setting is primarily near the confluence of the Kenai and Russian rivers. Salmon fill those streams by the hundreds of thousands. Pacific sockeye salmon 
known by anglers as reds or red salmon, are a smaller species of Pacific salmon. They're 18 to 31 inches long and weigh between 4 and 15 pounds. Seagoing sockeye are prized for their firm, bright orange flesh. They live in the ocean but return to fresh water to spawn. They spend about four years in fresh water and up to three years in the ocean. In Alaska, most sockeye return to spawn in June or July to the same area where they hatched, usually freshwater drainages or lakes. Spawning in rivers and streams and areas along lake beaches, a female deposits 2,000 to 5,000 eggs in depressions made by digging with her tail over several days. The depressions are called reds with two Ds. This may be where the nickname red salmon comes from. Bears love them too, and they fish in their own unique way at their own pace, side by side with fishermen on the riverbanks. Among the good folks enjoying the resources and beauty of the area, sometimes not so legitimate trophy hunters, poachers, and animal parks traffickers could be lurking about. More of a threat to wildlife than fishermen, they're not so friendly towards the Alaska wildlife troopers though. They like to blend in and mingle with fishermen. They take what they want wildlife-wise, regardless of size or quantity, not causing a scene or drawing undue attention. Regulated trophy hunting really isn't poaching. It's controlled and regulated under prescribed criteria. Areas, animal size and sex, and seasons are all designated. Unlike poaching, hunting is based on scientific management. The season isn't open during the salmon fishery when the large bears are so easily found. Managed properly, hunters taking animals properly can help improve populations and actually reduce the number of animals taken. It's worked for Alaska Big Game and even internationally. Hunting's an important tool of wildlife management. Alaska has seasons and regulations for subsistence users to pursue food year-round as well. This might be moose, caribou, fish, or even whales and bears. The seasons are carefully and cooperatively managed to improve populations and sustain subsistence needs and discourage poaching. Most poachers don't need an animal, they just want an animal. They sell ill-gotten trophies through illegal wildlife trade, often operated by dangerous criminal networks. There's huge profit in providing illegal hunts and black marketing even whole animals, sometimes just parts. Alaska's brown shirts enforce these laws alongside blue shirts and federal agencies. They enjoy their days with tourists and recreational users and remain vigilant to illegal acts and look out for the safety of the visitors. The fishing hole in Alaska Beartail is about a suspected killer, an accused violent offender on the loose along the glacial beauty of the Kedai River on Alaska's Kenai Peninsula near the Cooper Landing in the Kenai River Canyon. It's tracked by wildlife officers. It's a fugitive that's unaware how close he might be to being caught or worse, terminated by criminal poachers on his trail seeking a trophy just like him. He's a fugitive like no other, big, savage, probably innocent. Follow clues in this story of the brave officers tracking, even protecting unusual elusive foes like this in Alaska's wilderness as they learn the truth of actually who's good and who's bad along the way. Again, this is an exciting family-friendly story. Alaska's amazing mountains, waterways, fish and wildlife, they all provide backdrops and characters that draw readers into the stories they're on rights.
This is a land everyone should visit at least once in their lifetime. In this story, follow officers Betty Holden, Lee Goddard, and Sergeant Ted Wilson as they solve this unusual case. Ron's dedication of the fishing hole reads, I dedicate this novel to all the professional officers of the Alaska State Troopers and Alaska Wildlife Troopers who give so much of themselves to protect the citizens and wildlife of the great state of Alaska. It's this selfless dedication to duty that allows the rest of us to live in peace and safety. I thank all of them in memory of my late wife, retired Alaska Fish and Wildlife Officer, Betty L. Walden. Next time you visit Alaska, go downtown in Anchorage and tour the Alaska State Trooper Museum. It's small, but it is packed full of history on Alaska's law enforcement from territorial days to today. Look around and find the display remembering Betty, one of Alaska's first female fish and wildlife officers. When you visit Alaska, this museum is a must-see. Rod Walden's connection, how a book evolved from experiences and memories. Ron didn't work for Fish and Wildlife or Alaska State Troopers. His wife, Betty, was one of the first female Fish and Wildlife officers in the state of Alaska. Her involvement with that state office created good relationships with officers across the state. They were either frequently at the Walden House for coffee, or he'd be at their office for coffee with Betty. The officers and their families attended Betty's backyard birthday barbecues that Ron put together every spring. When she passed away, it left a pretty large hole in many people's lives, and unfortunately many of her co-workers have passed on since as well. She enjoyed watching moose from the back deck. Visitors and tourists alike enjoyed coming by to sit on the deck and watch moose wander in the yard. One cow moose that stayed there about 13 years had many calves there. She was friendly, not at all aggressive, but she was definitely not a pet. Bears were sometimes seen in the yard too, jousting a bird feeder or even attacking a lawn ornament. Ron's connection to the story of the fishing hole is the accompaniment he gave Betty when she strolled the shores of the Kenai River near the Russian River, not far from Cooper Landing. It was her job and she enjoyed it. They enjoyed the time together, the outdoors, close encounters with nature, its prey and predators, sometimes animals, sometimes of the human variety. He spent a lot of time with Betty on the shores among the bears. His friendship with Betty's wildlife co-workers brought Ron closer to their field of work in conversations and friendships. Their stories of huge bears, untold numbers of fish, and excited fishermen always stuck with Ron. He's experienced a lot of close encounters with the large brown bears on many fly-in trips that he flew in his own airplane, a Cessna PA-14 that he rebuilt from the ground up. Bears on one side of a stream, fishermen on the other, a few feet separating them. The mutual goal of nabbing fish for dinner kept them tolerant of each other, and there were plenty of fish to be distracted by. Sometimes a plane would even have a few teeth marks in the fabric from a curious bear that had wandered by while Ron was fishing. Taking off from an oceanside beach and flying over a swampy river delta revealed massive bears. Massive in quantity and massive in size. Some would stand swat in the air as planes took off over them. Rod always marveled at these giants and enjoyed showing others Alaska's fish and wildlife. While office work was a reality for Alaska wildlife troopers, patrolling and meeting people is actually what Betty loved the most. 
The job just happened to be along one of the most beautiful rivers in the world, 50 miles from lake to ocean. Amazing sights amid the most majestic mountains in the country, alongside the largest bears in the country, except polar bears further north and Kodiak bears a couple hundred miles south. Bag limits and possession limits were often disregarded in the rush to catch fish. Same with regulated types of fishing gear. People sometimes fudge that too. Snagging with lead weight treble hooks rather than fishing with a single bear hook. Betty would sidle up to someone that had obviously exceeded a limit or she'd seen snagging fish. Wearing a brown jacket, she'd clearly display wildlife enforcement emblems. She'd comment on the abundance of the day's catch skewered on a stringer at the feet of a fisherman. They'd respectfully acknowledge her as a curious grandmother, not so much as an enforcement officer. With a sheepish smile, they'd admit they had too many fish, offering thin justifications saying they needed a few extras to send to relatives. She'd ask them to reel in their line, show the license and ID, then she'd confiscate the fish and issue a ticket. Offenders often apologized, more embarrassed than angry. They'd sign the summons and sometimes even carry the illegal catch to her marked brown shirt truck. They might even open the door for her and thank her, then pack up and drive away, probably back to Anchorage. But they'd see her again at their court date, that's for sure. A good friend of Ron's built airplanes with them and had once been a territorial officer before Alaska became a state. This guy had a dry sense of humor that could keep a situation manageable when he used it practically. He sometimes sat quietly in the brush behind fishermen, watching them wading near a riverbank, reel in fish after fish, mostly snagged, not hooked legally. Feigning he was a fisherman looking for a good spot, he'd whisper, Man, it looks like you're doing pretty good. The fisherman would whisper back, Amazing. I know I have too many, but I ain't stopping. Come on over. The officer would whisper back, I'm going to have to cite you, maybe even arrest you. And then he'd stand up revealing his uniform and badge. The surprised fisherman would whisper back, Then why the hell are we whispering then? The officer responded in a whisper of his own, Less stressful that way. Betty, like other officers, could be summoned to a car versus moose accident on a highway or along a country road where a moose might be badly injured. She'd call a charity from a list and request a state trooper to investigate the accident. She could dispatch an injured moose with a revolver from pretty impressive distances, above river banks from a bridge, a long shot from a narrow road in deep snow. She was quite a shot, smart and fair too, and as tough as any officer. She'd wait for the charity as a blue shirt investigated the accident and issued any citations to drivers. With a charity on scene, she'd provide light to dress the moose by and a warm truck if the cold was too biting. A charity list is a roster of folks needing food or simply willing to salvage a moose in cases like this. Salvagers bring certain moose parts to the office for biologists in exchange for keeping salvageable meat to feed their families. It's still a well-managed program with moose so abundant that hundreds are involved in collisions annually on the Kenai Peninsula alone. Show notes provide links and information to that program as well as history of the wildlife troopers and the blue shirts.
Ron accompanied Betty on these efforts whenever he could. Some poachers she encountered would end up facing her in court. Later they might even meet Ron at the prison if a judge decided 30 days was in order. On a fall morning long ago, I accompanied a friend on a morning moose hunt not far from Kenai. It was a non-motorized area, so we rode bicycles along a gated road a few miles to a field that looked like it was a great spot to find a bull moose at daybreak. It was a dark, foggy morning and pretty cold. Leaving his bike in the ditch, the guy I was with walked in about 50 yards from the road. He stayed to the right side of the field near the scrub brush. I walked along an elevated ridge line a couple hundred yards to the left side of the field. The fog thinned a bit about sunrise, but it was still fairly foggy at ground level and pretty hard to see clearly. I used binoculars to glass the field's back edge where a dense brush rose in a stand of birch trees, then scanned back to where my partner was sitting. It looked to me like if I saw something legal at my end of the field, he could shoot and I wouldn't be in harm's way. I was elevated on the ridge and well to the left out of the line of fire. It would take time and a lot of energy to pack out a quartered moose through this swamp to the road, crossing soggy, spongy, muskeg and deadfall trees. Then with pack boards on our backs, we'd have to bicycle toward town to my truck. As dawn broke, I could see almost across the field without binoculars. Fog was still hanging low but less densely near the ground. From my vantage point, as the curtain of fog thinned and daylight made it possible to see a little better, I spotted two moose in the tall grass in a foggy haze. A cow moose was facing away from me, maybe 70, 80 yards away in the center of the field. She was about 100 yards from my partner. Her head was low in the wet grass as she ate a tundra breakfast. A few feet to her left, but directly beside her and facing me, was a legal bull moose. He'd drop his head low to the ground, eat a bit, then slowly raise his massive head high in the air to look side to side, first over the rump of the cow in the direction of my partner, then back to where I was before lowering his head and antlers to pull up more grass and grains, periodically poking his head up to scan the area. The cow did the same thing except when his head was up, hers was down. Guess they were kind of looking out for each other, maybe. I could barely see my friend at that point. When the bull dipped his head, I waved at my partner, signaling not to shoot until he was sure it was a bull. I used my best hand antlers and a finger across my neck while waving my head no, shaking it violently. And I was waving my arms in front of me like a baseball umpire and indicating there were two moose with my fingers in the air. This either meant something different in his Midwest mind or I wasn't frantic enough. I was sure he misunderstood, so sure that I yelled, Don't shoot! Later I realized I may have been giving third base coach signals that said it's a legal bull with hand antlers, kill it with fingers across my neck, it's safe, waving my arms like an umpire, so he stole home and shot it. When that bull put his head up, as I yelled and the cow had her head down, in the fog he said he saw the body of a moose with the head and antlers of a bull. He thought there was one moose there, so he shot it. I halted to stop shooting and ran down the ridge towards him. The bull moose ran into the birch trees and scrub brush at the far end of the field, never to be seen again. The cow had fallen to the ground, so I hollered at my partner that he did shoot a cow. 
We met in the center of the field next to the cow. He looked stunned, saying, I know it was a bull. I looked at it through my scope. I saw one moose there with antlers. He was sure 30 days was going to be his likely sentence. I explained the view from my vantage point. It was two moose, a cow standing closest to him, the bull behind the cow. When the bull lifted his head, it may have looked to him to be a single bull moose. Right then I knew we had to get fish and wildlife involved because it's not okay to shoot cow moose. I slogged to the road, got on a bike, and rode about two miles to a paved road, then another mile or so to an airport building that had a phone. I called the wildlife trooper office, asked him to send an officer to meet me. He showed up to drive me to the site. I explained the situation. I knew him well and I still do and he's, he's a really good man. I loaded the bike into the back of his truck next to a three-wheel ATV and off we went. He had a key to the gate so we were able to get through and drive to the field where my partner waited. When we stopped, my friend came from the field to announce he'd finished dressing out the moose. We just had to put it in meat sacks and pack it 100 plus yards to the road. Since this trooper worked with my stepmom Betty, I presumptively remarked how nice it was to have that ATV right here to help make packing it out so much quicker and simpler. It was dead silence except for mosquitoes and biting white sock flies that swarmed around and bit our uncovered hands and heads. Many years later, this trooper would become Alaska's Commissioner of Public Safety, leading the Alaska Department of Public Safety, including Alaska State Troopers and Alaska Wildlife Troopers. He looked at me, then at the ATV, then at my friend who'd shot the wrong moose, then more seriously at me before saying, uh, you know, that's not how this works. You two pack that out here like you would have if it were legal. I'll wait for you and we'll drive it out to your rig, but the three-wheeler is not an option. Then he climbed into the truck and was no longer being eaten alive by mosquitoes and biting flies. We packed the moose through flies, mosquitoes, and wet, spongy, muskeg, and deadfalls in eight trips. We put it in his truck next to our bikes and the idle ATV. He took us to town where we moved our bikes into my truck. He issued my friend a citation and a summons, confiscated his guns and other hunting gear. Then he began to drive away, but he stopped a few yards later and backed up, rolled his window down and said, you know Betty's not gonna like this. He smiled and rolled the window up and left. I've known him now for more than 35 years. He's always cordial and friendly, but I've only seen him smile twice in my entire life. That was one of them. I know he smiles more though because some of the geezers in Ron's other books heard the story and say he did crack his smile. A couple weeks later, my friend went to court on the cow moose summons and he asked me to go with him. I was named on the citation, though I wasn't cited. Oddly, in the intervening weeks, Betty had said nothing to me over dinner or at family gatherings about this Ronian. Maybe she didn't know after all. Maybe no one had told her. Yes. As we entered the courtroom, a judicial services officer told us to sit at the defendant's table to wait for the judge and a wildlife trooper to get there. This J.S. officer was all smiles and he looked suspiciously like a character in Ron's 13th book, Alaska State Troopers Geezer Squad, a character named John Ashley. The door swung open. My stepmom Betty marched in wearing a crisp uniform as always. 
She shot me a look that clearly startled the judge. He called the bailiff to the bench. I heard the JS officer tell the judge, these guys won't be out of line, judge. If that's what you're worried about, it's not gonna happen. The judge whispered, it's not them. I've seen that look on Betty's face before. We might need extra help in here is all. The judge cleared his throat and asked Betty to read the citation. When she finished, he asked her opinion on penalties. She reviewed the citation once again, concurred with the young wildlife trooper's action of confiscating the rifle, handgun, and other items, and for taking the hunting license. Officer Walden asked the judge to fine the man $500 to forfeit his gun, handgun, and hunting privileges for one year before any of those items or hunting privileges could be returned. The judge con concurred and so ordered. Then he asked, what about the young man that was with the culprit, the young man with the same last name as you, Officer Walden? Betty thought for a moment, then replied, well, Your Honor, I know for a fact he knows better. He's my stepson. He'll be at my house for dinner tonight. She glared at me and I nodded yes, trying to hide my fear. She continued, I'll make sure the penalty is appropriate. The judge laughed and concurred with all her recommendations. He wished me the best of luck at dinner that evening. Betty rose to leave. She leaned across the table and she said, I had better never see you under these circumstances or anything like it again. Dinner's at six. And with that, she was gone. So you've just met a few examples of real folks that could become characters in The Fishing Hole and other books by Ron Walden. There are more characters to be sure. How a title came to be. Well, growing up, nearly everyone's had an experience if they fished at all, of finding a place they favored. It was their fishing hole. In this book, the Kenai River at the confluence of the Russian River is the fishing hole where the Alaska bear tail unfolds. Bears mob the area along trails to the Russian River Falls. People come from all over the world to hike, fish, and see the bears. Bears love to fatten themselves up on the fish, roe, milt, and all the other goodness raw fish gives a bear. So the title is simply referenced to a fishing hole like no other in the world. One that thousands of people and hundreds of bears call their own. One with hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of fish swarm in the waters. Thousands of fishermen on any given day during a season do their best to bring fish home. Somewhere in the mix must be a few not-so-nice poachers looking for opportunities to line their pockets. So when you see this book called The Fishing Hole in Alaska Bear Tile, maybe it's defined just a little better now. But you got to read the story to reveal the villains and heroes and follow Alaska wildlife troopers and their daily duties, which are definitely not as simple as you might have thought. The images this book paints are beautiful. You need to just look at that cover. So why visit Cooper Landing? Cooper Landing is a place to visit if you'd like to enjoy a float trip of a few hours or even longer for a float through the Russian River confluence with the Kenai River down through the Kenai River Canyon below an area called Jim's Landing and on into Skelak Lake. Show notes at wisdomofthedonutholeblog.blogspot.com have links and information, including some history of why those names exist, Jim's Landing, Skelak, and what the trip might be like. For salmon, huge rainbow trout, and to watch for wildlife, 
archaeology sites along the canyon are preserved out of respect for Alaska natives that seasonally migrated to and from the canyon due to fish populations. It's a beautiful area between the Chugach Mountains and a valley, the Kenai River is a glacier-fed stream at the outflow of Kenai Lake in Cooper Landing and on to Skelak Lake, where the outflow there spans about 40 miles downstream through Soldotla and Kenai, where it flows on into the Pacific Ocean in a branch of the Gulf of Alaska called Cook Inlet. There are lots of branches to explore out of the Cooper Landing area. Just upstream is Kenai Lake, Quartz Creek is near the highway at the old town site of Sunrise, which is a pretty fine place to have a meal and watch the mountains for sheep and goats. The entire area of Cooper Landing, including Quartz Creek, is famous for gold, either panned or sluiced. Watch eagles in the Kenai River near an old gold site that flow out of Cooper Creek into the Kenai River. Ride the Russian River Ferry. It's been shuttling fishermen and tourists across the river since 1955. Powered by the current, it takes just minutes from your car to get across to the wilderness side of the river. The world-famous Russian River Ferry is located at the confluence of the Russian and Kenai Rivers on Alaska's beautiful Kenai Peninsula. The ferry services one of the most productive salmon sport fishing areas in all of North America. Bears abound in this area, so be careful. <clears throat> brown bears make the fishing hole in Alaska bear tail. A local brown bear had to be on the cover. The cover had to hint at the story at a glance. A brown bear minding its business, enjoying the fishing hole. The book cover story is what makes this book's cover so amazing. It's a story of its own. First, the photographer. Heidi Hansen is an amazingly capable photographer. She spent countless hours in the wilds of Alaska, including the area that's the setting for the fishing hole in Alaska Bear Tail near Cooper Landing. It's about 50 miles from her home in Solana area. She's an independent soul, unafraid to spend many hours alone in any weather, surrounded by large fish-eating brown bears. Why? To get the perfect picture she gets as these bears fish alongside people and other bears to catch and eat their fill of salmon. Bears hibernate and have to put on extra calories to make it through the long, cold Alaska winter. Heidi catches these amazing animals in the midst of their fishing efforts and meal times as they devour every scrap of every fish they catch. They dig, sleep, play, catch fish, eat, scratch, then repeat. That's a bear's life. When Ron created this book, he wanted a cover like no one had seen before. He wanted a local photographer's work to be that cover. He wanted a photo so clear so Alaskan, so raw and self-explanatory that it may not even exist. He had no idea even where to start looking. Being a hockey fan, Ron attended many North American Hockey League games at the local NAHL team. Of course, the team is called the Kenai Brown Bears. Being acquainted with Heidi Hansen, manager of the Kenai Brown Bears Bear Den shop, Ron heard she photographed bears. He contacted Heidi to ask if he could look at some of her photos for possible use as a book cover on his newest book. Heidi was the perfect choice. Looking through thousands of amazingly crisp photos was worth it. The candid shots of these bears is surreal. The behavior, the looks, the eye rolls, even the fishing are perfectly captured. 
As he realized how long this search could take, Heidi suggested looking at the most current ones first. On the very first page of digital photos, Ron found the one. This photo is so lifelike and sharp. The bear is surrounded by thick greenery of brush and grass while standing in a clear stream. It has a salmon in its mouth, having clamped down on the fish's back, just in front of the dorsal fin. The salmon's bright red with a green head, maybe weighing seven to eight pounds and about two feet long. All around the bear in the clear flowing mountain river, you can see a school of similar fish, similar in size and color, idling and swimming around and under the bear between river rocks. The bear's looking at the bounty in the river, not wanting to drop the one it has, but still wanting more. This is the perfect fishing hole picture. As Ron zoomed into the photo, it stayed crisp and clear. The bear's eyes came closer but stayed sharply focused. The whites are visible, as are the pupils. The bear's gaze is sharply on other salmon in the river as it steps around rocks rising from the stream. This is the fishing hole and the Alaska bear tail in a single frame. Heidi had the cover photo for sure. She agreed and it was perfect. Ron included a full page near the title page of his book and a back cover section to recognize Heidi to provide information of contacts and let readers order more photos from her. It's included in the copy of the book filed with the Library of Congress and in every copy printed. For more amazing photographs of Alaska brown and black bears in the wild just being bears, contact her. Heidi Hansen Photography, Sodotna, Alaska. Her email is aksk8 at outlook.com. On Facebook, all one word, Heidi Ho AK49 Photography and on Instagram Heidi underscore Ho underscore AK49 underscore photography. Heidi supports the Kenai River Brown Bears NAHL team in the skate shop and at the Bears Den store. She's an amazing photographer and a sincerely good person. Thanksgiving 2023 is in years before she flew to Las Vegas for a break and to watch some Golden Knights hockey. She used her time there to walk the area, providing gifts to homeless folks. She assured them they're not forgotten, and she helped them feel a bit safer and a lot more comfortable. Fox5Vegas.com went with Heidi and produced a nice video report about her effort. Search Fox 5 Vegas for... Alaskan makes holiday trip to Las Vegas to help the homeless. Thank you, Heidi. This new novel, The Fishing Hole and Alaska Bear Tale, is on sale wherever books are sold. Check your hometown bookstores and online, including ronwalden.com, booksamillion.com, barnesandnoble.com, and many others. Ask for them if you don't see them. Now the next time we intend to return to the beginning with Ron's very first novel from 1996, Cinch Knot, Pigs, Politics, and Petroleum, the multinational plot to nuke the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. We plan to release new episodes monthly, more frequently as we can, so check your favorite podcast platforms for updates and new episodes. Our podcasts are found on all major platforms including iTunes, Spotify, Samsung, Audible, iHeart, YouTube, and more. Listen and like, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform. Order your books today. Check out ronwalden.com for a look at all the covers and synopsis of each book. 
I'm your host, Scott Walden. Read Ron's books and visit Alaska. Episode transcripts and show notes are downloaded and available at wisdomofthedonutholeblog.blogspot.com. And once again, thanks to Ray Lankford for the show's theme music entitled The Wisdom of the Donut Hole Theme, an instrumental written, performed, and provided with permission by Ray Lankford of Shoshone County, Idaho. Look for more of Ray's music on his website, Ray Lankford Music and Writing. Thank you for listening. See the show notes for further resources and information.